because of what you have done. It's nothing we have done of ourselves, uh, but the finished work of Christ. Lord, I was reading the book of John today and just reminded of many who did not believe, who had cold hearts that approached you and thinking they knew you and you just um, warning them and revealing to them patiently and clearly about the need for Christ, not religious activity or or not just knowing you by name or not by just an uh, outward observance, but a true relationship, one who drinks of the living water, one who is redeemed and saved and changed and, and, and made a new creation by the Spirit of God that comes by belief in you alone. And Father, for those of you who have believed on you today here, Lord, we just rejoice. We, we praise you. We thank you that we can come today and hear from you, hear from your word. That, Lord, you've given us the Spirit of God that where the natural man can't understand, we can now, Lord. And we just praise you for that. And how we pray you use your servant today, uh, Joseph, as he uh, just uh, shares with us how he studied the word and um, how we pray you use his words and pray the Spirit of God would just uh, use that to just illumine our minds and help us to understand what you have to say. Use Joseph today, and uh, may you be glorified as he speaks to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with all of you today. As Rich said, my name is Joseph Daughtry. A lot of people call me Jojo. Seminary student here, Timberlake. I've been coming to Timberlake for like three and a half years. And so it's a blessing to be able to serve in the church in this way. So we're in that in-between series stage over breaks. So I'm going to give a series consisting of one part. <laughs> the passage we're looking at today is closely related to the series on growth that Clay taught last semester. That we learned about discipleship and specifically how we grow in discipleship. We learned about why we need to grow, how we grow, and then also examine some case studies applying those techniques and those means um, to growing in specific ways. And so the core of this series is that those who know Christ, who know a saving love, mercy, and grace on the cross, are people who have been made new. And as new creatures, we're continually renew our minds in the truth. This means that we place our faith in what God shows us to be true in his word, and we orient our entire thinking around this perspective rather than anyone else or what anyone else has to say. And as we do this mind renewal, we then act in faith on these truths. Acting in faith like this strengthens our spiritual muscle, strengthens our convictions. It is by exercising this faith in the truth that the scripture matures us. The passage that we're looking at today encapsulates much of these same topics. So this will be a reinforcing message of these things as we look more closely at some verses. And so it will be Romans 12, 1 through 2, um, talking about true worship. So let's read them together now. You can turn over there. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this is a text that sharply brings into focus how to apply truth to mind renewal, that we may better worship God as he intends us to. So, first little context, in case you need a refresher on what we've been covering in main service with Pastor Farrell. So, in the Epistle of Romans, verses 12, 1 through 2, are the hinge point of the entire book. Chapters 1 through 11 are focused primarily on truth, that the church needs to know, 
chapters 12 through 16 are about how this truth impacts the Christian's daily lives in concrete ways. And so right now we're in this first section um, of Romans in main service in chapter 5. So I won't belabor everything that's going on there. But if you were to summarize this section, you could say it is a glorious, in-depth explanation of the gospel. Romans 1 through 3 is about the sinful state of man and the need for Christ the Savior to save men who are entirely depraved. Romans 4 through 5 is more about Christ the Savior and how we're saved by grace through faith. Romans 6 through 8 gives more truth about the realities of personal Christian life, particularly union with Christ and life in the Spirit as we navigate still walking with fleshly influences. And then Romans 9 through 11 explains God's plan for Israel and the wonder that Gentiles are included now in the new covenant. So then comes Romans 12, 1 through 2. And as this passage turns the corner in the letter, it alludes back to some of the themes covered in previous chapters. And then it paves the way for thinking through chapters 12 through 16, which have almost a proverbial feel to them. There are lots of short commands juxtaposing the life conformed um, to Christ with the life that is conformed to the world. So while Proverbs primarily speaks of wisdom and folly, here Paul uses the terms of love and evil, or good and evil. So rather than living according to this evil world, we are to imitate our good and loving Savior, Christ. So as Paul shifts from explaining what the gospel is, he adds another therefore. As Pastor Farrell has explained, this means Paul is adding another layer to what he's already talked about um, beforehand. So you could phrase it as this. In light of this glorious gospel that I spent 11 chapters explaining, and then he adds this other layer. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today, is the layer that Paul gives to connect living out the gospel after understanding the glorious truths of the gospel. The first thing that he wants us to know about is gospel worship. So at the essence of this verse is a call to worship. Worship is one of those words in evangelical Christianity that is loosely defined and is often confusing because we just don't know what people mean when they use it. Is it limited to singing songs? Is it congregational? Is it individual? What do we do if it's not only singing songs? And what is especially scary is that many people set their own definitions for what worship is. But God doesn't let us do that, and he's given us a definition here. And it begins with an appeal. Paul says that, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So here Paul gives an apostolic exhortation. He's an apostle, an eyewitness of Christ, who has given authority to carry on the teachings of Jesus. So when he gives us an exhortation, it carries the weight of a command from God. This verse, hear God exhorting us. The Almighty God who has saved us is commanding us, urging us, calling us unto something. And he is calling us to worship him. And he doesn't just call us to do this, he gives us a motivation as well. He says that he appeals by the mercies of God. So Paul's appeal is not just rooted in his own apostolic authority. Paul is exhorting the church in light of the mercy of God. This is the mercy that is referenced much in all of Romans, but especially in chapters 9 through 11. So we're going to look at a few of these verses, so you can flip over to chapter 9. The first verse is Romans 9. Uh, verse 15, where God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. The next verse, 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Romans 9, 18, so then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And God desires to show his glory through vessels of mercy, his own people, as in verse 
9.23. And speaking of Israel in Romans 11, 30, 32, it says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And so we see that Paul is emphasizing the mercy of God and the salvation of Israel, but also in bringing Gentiles into that salvation. And so this needs to be ringing in our hearts and minds because I believe pretty much everyone here is a Gentile. Um, And it's just incredible that God, who has chosen Israel, has now grafted in Gentiles in his plan of salvation. And of course, there's a beautiful passage in Romans 8 explaining God's unfailing and separable love toward us who are unlovely. We see this love also in Romans 5, where Paul says that while we are still sinners, still enemies, still ungodly, Christ died for us. Paul says elsewhere that by the grace of God, I am what I am. He is defined by God's grace and mercy. And we're all familiar with the passage in Exodus 34. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this love and mercy is magnified by the depravity of man in Romans 1 through 3, the insidious flesh of Romans 7, and the mysterious salvation given to us in Romans 9 through 11. So it is this fact that God lovingly saves and sanctifies such people, such as us, is incredible. And so this mercy needs to be ringing in our hearts and minds, specifically that God is defined by this grace and mercy. He is a merciful God. And the fact that he's also a just and righteous God who hates sin magnifies his mercy and love. And what is beautiful is that this mercy and love given to us now defines us, his church. We are people of God's mercy. And so this word by and by the mercies could be translated because of or in view of. So in other words, Paul is saying, because of the mercy of God, I exhort you. In view of the mercy of God, I appeal to you. So before we get to what he's exhorting us to, we must ask, do I know the mercy of God? Am I thankful for it? Do I rejoice in God, a God slow to anger, merciful and gracious? All those things, Exodus 34. Am I humbled by the fact that I deserve his wrath, but he gave me his grace and mercy and steadfast love? Instead, as he poured out his wrath on his son. Brothers and sisters, this is the starting point of mind renewal. This is the starting point of worship, of obedience. If our understanding of God's mercy is skewed, then everything else will be incorrect. We must start here. And if you're at all like me, this is where we're often most tempted to fail. It's so easy to get caught up in right, nitty-gritty doctrine, living a life of principled wisdom, following the right rules, seeking excellence in life, that it's easy to make these things the main things, and we lose sight of God's mercy. Or we're even licentious with God's mercy, We claim the forgiveness of God and don't understand that His kindness and mercy, when truly embraced, is supposed to lead us to repentance, to obedience. Rather, we give ourselves license to sin because we think we have a get-out-of-hell-free card. When we act in either of these ways, we're not acting according to true mercy, but actually we're being guided by our own selfish desires. And with a footing like that, there's not going to be any true obedience. There's not going to be any true repentance um, or any true worship of the Lord. So, as we're going through Romans, we're halfway through that first section um, in Romans 5 now, really pay attention to what Pastor Farrell teaches us about 
the glorious truth of salvation, of God's grace and mercy. And let that resonate all of your lives with Christ, because that is the footing and really where everything is built up in. So then Paul gives us his command. He says that we are to present our bodies as a sacrifice. He calls us to present our bodies as a sacrifice to God specifically. So as mercy reigns entirely over us, so we should present our lives entirely to God. This word for present alludes back to Romans 6, 13, and 19, where Paul instructs us to present our members as instruments for righteousness because of our union with Christ. And the reference to bodies here emphasizes that we are the sacrifice. In this physical life, we present ourselves to God. This use of the word sacrifice has a lot to impact, so we'll camp out here for a little while. Alludes to the Old Testament sacrificial order that God gave to Israel. So since Christ is the atoning sacrifice, the Old Testament sacrificial order has been done away with, and a new sacrificial order has been brought in. This new sacrificial order is rooted in the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. Christ was the infinitely perfect sacrifices to pay for our infinitely egregious sins. This sacrifice was once for all. When Christ gave it, he said, it is finished. But now Christians, under the new covenant, continue to offer other sacrifices. We're told in 1 Peter 2.5 that we're to give spiritual sacrifices as members of the house of God. And then Hebrews 13.15 says that these are sacrifices of praise. And we see in Romans 12.1 that it's ultimately the sacrifice of our very selves to the Lord. And then Paul describes the sacrifice with three words. Um, the first of which is that it is living. That means that the sacrifices that we are supposed to give is ongoing. But not only that it's ongoing, it also shows that there are sacrifices of those who are alive in Christ. So we're not earning our life by giving ourselves to the Lord. We give ourselves to the Lord because we are already alive. We are already living. And so to give a living sacrifice, it's not just that we are, have hearts that are beating, but it's also that we are truly alive in Christ. So that's the first criteria for the sacrifice um, that we are to give. The next is that it's supposed to be holy. So one of the criteria for sacrifices in the Old Testament was that they are to be holy. They are holy and that they are clean, set apart from the world, but they are also holy and that they are devoted entirely to God. The sole purpose of the sacrifice was entirely God-centered. It was all about God and nothing else. Likewise for us, for our sacrifices to be holy, we are to devote ourselves to nothing but God. You may be wondering, how do I know if I am devoting myself to God? How do I know if I have idols in my life that I'm devoting myself to, besides the Lord? The short answer is that you will know because you'll be sinning in some form or fashion without any signs of repentance. If we are devoted to God, we will do good, and we will return to God even when we stray for a time. But if we are devoted to idols, then we will sin in some way. So you can ask yourself, how do I sin? Why do I sin? You likely find an idol at the heart of the matter. And obviously we all have idols that we're more prone to worship, prone to devote ourselves to than others. And these are things that we need to be on the lookout for and not devote ourselves to these things and devote ourselves entirely to the Lord. And then Paul describes it with another word, and this word is acceptable. This word can also be translated as well-pleasing. So just because people would offer sacrifices to God doesn't mean that they're pleasing just because they're well-intended or uh, intended to please God. 
In fact, offering sacrifices to God while not obeying him or not doing it in the way that he commands us to is actually seen as an affront to God. So in the Old Testament, if a person gave a sacrifice that did not meet his standards, it was unacceptable to him. Rather than being a pleasing aroma, Isaiah 65.5 says that God sees it as smoke in his nostrils. We all know that experience of sitting around a campfire and the smoke won't stop following you around. And that's our unacceptable worship to God. It's not pleasing. It's aggravating. It's not good. And remember Nadab and Abihu? They were the priests, specifically sons of Aaron, the first priest. Because they offered unauthorized incense to God. God killed them. Their worship was sin. And it was unacceptable to God. And in Psalm 50, we see that God actually delights in his people's walking in his ways and being humble and thankful more than he delights in ritual sacrifices. So we see even in the Old Testament, God wants his people to walk in ways that are godly, primarily. But the key takeaway here is that how we act as believers matters to God. We do not save ourselves or add to our salvation by how we act. But we see that our day-to-day actions can please or displease God. So when we consider a situation we are in, we should ask, is this pleasing to the Lord? We do not offer ourselves to God to please man or to please ourselves. Our aim is to please the Lord, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.9. When we give ourselves to sacrifices, give ourselves as sacrifices, we are devoting ourselves to God, seeking what he delights as he is appropriate for those who already have life in Christ. And Paul defines all of this um, with the description, he defines the sacrificial life as our spiritual worship. So this sacrificial devotion to the Lord, this is worship. Seeking what pleasing him, pleases him. Seeking what is holy as he is holy. Seeking to abide in him and in his life. That is worship. Worship is so much more than simply singing a song or listening to a sermon or even reading your Bible and praying. Those are all good things and are part of walking with God. But that is what worship is, is walking with God in day-to-day life. We are to understand that ordering our lives by faith according to God's standards, that is our worship. And this worship is rooted in God's all-encompassing mercy, which demands that we give all of ourselves as he has given so much to us. So how do we worship this way? How do we grow in worshiping the Lord as we devote ourselves to him? So Paul covers that in the next verse, which brings us to our next main point, glorifying growth. So Paul explains in this verse more about how we worship God. He starts by saying that we should not conform to this world, but be transformed. Both of these terms are related to who we are as humans, as those who bear God's image. We know that God created man, male and female, and he created them in his image, Genesis 1.27. So from the beginning, we see that man has been given a specific form. Mankind has received who he is from someone else, from God. But now in a fallen world, we are still susceptible for our image to be changed. And the world is after us to shape us in its image, an image that is contrary to the image that God gave us. So in light of this reality, we're told, do not conform to the world. Do not image the world. You can also state the phrase like this, do not be shaped by this age. This world, this age, it has a way of life. It has a pattern, a shape to it. And it is strong and fixed. 
Remember Ephesians 2 that says unbelievers follow the pattern of this world and the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And this pattern is the pattern that Satan has shaped the world into because he is the one influencing the lost, as we see in John 12. And Satan is trying to shape us into that image. Though we are image bearers, though we know the Lord, Satan is trying to warp that image that we bear. He is corrupting it after the image of his liking, after an image that is anti-God. We know that he is powerful, like a lion, seeking to devour whoever he can, 1 Peter 5, 8. We are weak, wayward, and vulnerable sheep. If we collide with Satan unprepared, we will be like unformed pottery, malleable in the hand of a maliciously skilled craftsman. We will be conformed to his corrupt image rather than grow into what God would have us grow into. Something that is important to note here is that when we are in default mode, we are being conformed to the world. If we are not growing in Christ, then we are growing in the image of this world. There is no neutral because if you notice the word do not be conformed, shows that there is something shaping us. There is something at work in us, upon us. And if we're not resisting that, then it will have its way. So how do we combat that? We combat it by being transformed. Paul says that we should be transformed. This word transformed is the same word used in the garden when Jesus was transfigured. This time, Christ displayed the glory of God in a unique and special way at his transfiguration. In his human form, he displayed more and more of the glory of God. He was a more and more clear image of the glory of God. And it's also used in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we see that as we walk with Christ, we are also transformed into that same image, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. In this way, as we grow as God's image bearers, we grow as God glorifiers, as God worshipers. And this is growing in our true humanity that God gave us, that God designed us in. This is our ultimate purpose. So as we grow in transforming to the image of Christ, in this we find the most joy, the most fulfillment than anything else that we could ever do. And this is why we resist sin. This is why we resist being conformed to the world to find this joy, to find this life that Christ has given us, and to have it to his full degree. As Christ says in John, like he writes these things to us, that, or John says to us in John, that our joy may be full, that we may walk in these things. And being conformed to the world, those things kill us, those things destroy our joy. So knowing that God has given us purpose and meaning in pursuing him and following him, worshiping him, that should motivate us to pursue those things, help us see that sin is not just something to resist because it's bad. But truly, it warps us away from what we were designed to be and what we were designed to do. So how do we grow in the figure of Christ? How do we grow in transforming? It's the means of mind renewal. Paul tells us that we transform by the renewal of our mind. So Clay covered this a lot last semester, so I won't belabor this. But the key idea is that we are to remodel and reprogram the way we fundamentally think in our hearts and minds. Rather than being conformed to this world where our image-bearing abilities are dulled and our lights dimmed, we are, pattern, we are to pattern our thinking after the truth, act on it in faith, and thereby become more clear and accurate representations of Christ. And this renewal must happen every day. Some mornings we wake up and it seems that our hearts and minds have forgotten that we are saved and we are very tempted to go back to our old ways. 
And when this happens, we must repent and continually renew our hearts and minds in the truth. We wake up and we find that we want things that are evil. And so we show ourselves by the truth. Hey, that's a lie. Even though I have that desire, that will kill me, that will destroy me, that will hurt those around me. That's not honoring to the Lord. When we apply the truth to those situations about how those things are good for us, how those things are honoring to the Lord. And by that, we change the way we think, and then we act on those things in faith. And that is mind renewal. But mind renewal in itself isn't the goal. There's a purpose that we're mind renewing our minds unto. And Paul says that that is the ability to prove what is the will of God. The phrase that he uses is that by by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this, so that, shows that the mind renewal has an end that we're working towards. Find that we are growing and discerning what is the will of God, then we are doing mind renewal correctly. But if we find that we aren't growing in discernment of what is the will of God, then something is off. And this phrase, so that by testing you may discern, is actually one word in the Greek. And it can be translated simply as approve. So to put it back in the phrase, it would be so that you may approve what is the will of God. And this carries the connotation that mind renewal results in understanding the will of God as well as in embracing of it. We come to know what God desires, and we want what he desires as well. And this obviously does not mean that we will know God's specific will for our lives, meaning what paths we will take, who we will marry, that sort of thing. But rather, it is discerning how God would have us act in a particular situation, embracing that, and then acting in faith in that way. And there are three descriptors that help us know the will of God. Those that are good, acceptable, and perfect. And so, obviously, the Bible doesn't have explicit instructions for how we should live our day-to-day lives and everything. But by this exhortation that we renew our minds and grow in approving what is the will of God, that means that God has given us the responsibility to know his word, to study his word, and to practice becoming more and more discerning, like Hebrews 5 or Hebrews 4 says. And so if we aren't doing this, if we are letting ourselves be immature, if we are not applying the scriptures to this, grow in discerning and approving what the Lord would have us do, then that is on us. Then that is our negligence. And obviously this takes time to grow in. Um, and it's a long, long road as we grow in this way. It's huge to see that God does hold us responsible. Just saying, I don't know how I should act in a certain situation is not a good excuse. God is calling us to renew our minds and to know his word and to practice it in day-to-day concrete situations. So this brings us to our implications. Number one is to prioritize communion with Christ. We need the word and communion with the Lord every day. This has to be a priority, and this is the chief means of mind renewal. And so every day we need to have patterns of spending time in the word and also spending time in prayer. Clay has talked about how he likes to do a 50-50, however much time he has, spend half of it in prayer, half of it in the Word. And there's lots of different Bible reading plans that are very, very helpful. I found it helpful sometimes. For me, I like to be a little more untrack-minded. And so I like to go through just like one book at a time for a time period, or maybe like just two books at a time. Other people like to have Bible reading plans that have you in like four places in Scripture. And you read like half a chapter in each of those a day. 
and you get a broad perspective of everything that's going on. However you do it, the point is that we need to be practicing and cultivating disciplines of exposing ourselves to the truth because this is the means that the Spirit uses to renew our minds and to bring us that discernment that allows us to live the rest of our days um, in the Lord. And specifically, prayer is exceedingly important in this area. I know I'm tempted to spend more time in the Word than prayer, and that prayer is much more difficult to spend time with. But prayer is the time where we really get our hearts to align with the truth that we've processed in our minds through the Word. And just to pray through the Lord's Prayer is such a recentering time to pray that the Lord glorifies His name, that He brings His kingdom, that His will will be done. Helps me to see all the things, helps us to see all the things in our days as being centered around Him first and foremost, primarily. And so if you're struggling with prayer, I highly recommend looking through the key points of the Lord's Prayer and using that as a model, kind of as an outline. And pray through your own day through the Lord's Prayer. If there's someone else that you know is struggling, pray through their situation through the Lord's Prayer. That is something that is exceedingly fruitful and helpful. And it's how the Lord has taught us to pray, so why would we not use that? The second implication is prioritize the local church. This is where truth is guarded and applied by loving, wise, and careful shepherds. Being involved in a place like Timberlake will help you renew your mind and grow in approving the will of the Lord. Obviously, we're very young, and even if we are growing in discernment, we are growing in understanding how to apply the will of the Lord in specific situations. There are so much, so many people who know how to do that better than we do. And so talking with people like that, living life with people like that, will grow us further, seeing how they apply the truth, how they grow in prayer, how they renew their minds, and how they worship the Lord with all that they do. And so be involved here. Come to all the things that you can. Hear as much good teaching as you can. And get to know people outside of Boundless as well. Um, so you can have that multi-generational wisdom. Also, we need to be careful to guard our heart. Probably all familiar with the Proverbs that says, Guard your heart, for from it flow the rivers of life. And so we're called that we need to set our hearts and minds on the Lord throughout the day. And this is kind of the reinforcement um, aspect that we're working towards. And so whether it be podcasts, verses on notes that you set around you, specific prayer reminders, patterns of serving the Lord, it's so helpful to have things throughout the day, not just that time in the morning or time when that you have more devoted time with the Lord, um, to help periodically reminding you of the truth that you're renewing your mind in. And that's kind of like the way we reinforce our hearts and that we guard our hearts. But there's also a defensive um, method as well. We need to be careful of what we expose our hearts to. So there's lots of ways they were tempted to expose our hearts to things that are unnecessarily worldly. Obviously, most of us live lives um, where we're exposed to things in the world quickly, oftenly, um, and we can't avoid those times, and that's where we battle but there are other times where we go into the battle unnecessarily. We bring the battle to us when it should be a time of being at a time of rest or just a time where we don't have to fight the enemy. And so one way that I see this is with social media. All it takes is one second of seeing something or of reading something for a seed to be planted in our hearts and minds. 
And in Galatians 6, we're said that God will not be mocked, but that which one sows, that will he also reap. While social media in itself is not intrinsically wrong, there is a lot of bad things on it. And even seeing something or reading something for just a second, it has an impact on us. And so we need to be aware of that. We need to be careful about that. 30 minutes of scrolling through things on your phone could actually be 30 minutes of Satan conforming you to the world. So we need to practice discernment, understanding what the Lord would have us do with social media and be careful with it and be honest that that is a portal that Satan uses to conform us to his image. The same thing follows with music, movies, and that sort of thing. I am amazed. I will listen to one song with like two swear words in it. And for the rest of the day, I am exceedingly more tempted to swear and even swearing in my own heart. But if I don't give myself that one foothold, then it's so much more easier not to go down that path. And so the things that we expose ourselves to, they become patterns in our minds, and we have to fight those things. We also need to be careful with the people we spend time with. Bad company corrupts good morals, and he who walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. It's been said that you are a combination of the five people you spend the most time with. And so the people that we spend time with has an impact on us. And so if the majority of the people that you spend time with are ungodly, are not pushing you to glorify Christ, then that shows that you need to rethink through who you're spending time with, rethink through who are your closest friends, who you're investing in, who is investing in you, and pursue good, godly people, specifically through the local church. We're all here to encourage one another, to build one another up, and to push one another towards Christ. But it does take some intentionality and some investment personally, to make that happen. It will not just happen um, without that. And so we see that what we expose ourselves to matters, but also we have a place in what we expose others to as well. So we have the ability to be a Christ-like influence or to also be a worldly influence. In our demographic, I found that the biggest one that it's easy to be an ungodly influence it's just with what we speak, what we say. And it's so easy to just say a quick, vulgar joke, or it's easy to gossip, it's easy to exalt ourselves, or to slander others. So we need to examine ourselves and ask if the words we are speaking are edifying and well-pleasing to God. And we should seek to speak, according to Ephesians 4.29. It says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So there's all sorts of ways that we could tease this out and further like implications and applications. But the key that we need to take with is that this process of growing and renewing our minds, growing and approving what is the will of God, growing and offering ourselves as a sacrifice to the Lord is a lifelong pursuit. It is not something we'll ever reach perfection in. But we see that how we live our lives in the day-to-day can impact how we grow, and it does matter to the Lord. Every time we apply truth to an area of life, That strengthens our spiritual muscle. It grows our discernment. It reorients our affections. And it sharpens us as image bearers. And this is not something that we only do ourselves. But it's something that we can intentionally be a positive reinforcement, a positive force in the lives of others as well. But the battle is hard. The road is straight and narrow. And the influences of the world are ever pervasive, encroaching themselves on our hearts and minds. And that's why we need to look primarily to God and his mercy. We must always start there. From there, we must fight for mind renewal. 
As enticements of the world are ever strong and pervasive, so should the church combat them with equally persistent efforts to renew our minds in the truth. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. It is ultimately about worship. The sanctification process, this path to obedience, this is true worship. We must not neglect the joyful privilege of growing a lifestyle that is pleasing to our Heavenly Father more and more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for explaining to us how you would have us live for you, how you would have us worship you, serve you. I just ask that you take these truths here in Romans 12, 1 through 2, and implant them deep within our hearts. Help us to grow in my renewal. Help us to grow in applying your truth, to knowing your will, and the concrete situations in our life, Lord. Help us to encourage one another and build one another up and be Christ-like influences um, to one another. Pray that you dismiss us in our blessing, with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.